0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Matt Arnold has worked with several organizations since his days as a student at UC Santa Barbara making stops with the Dodgers, Rangers, Reds, and Rays before becoming the assistant general manager of the Brewers in October 2015. With a vast scouting background and an interest in everything ranging from biomechanics to financial planning, Arnold has been referred to as the Ben Zobrist of front offices. I had a chance to sit down with Arnold to talk about his career, the analytics versus scouting debate, his memories of Tampa Bay's famous Game 162, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Brewers Vice President and Assistant General Manager Matt Arnold. Matt, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate nice it. Park. How are you? I'm doing well. So during your youth in California, I read that you used to go hang out at a sports bar, play Pac Man, <laughs> uh, and, and chat with some of the guys in the bar about baseball. Was where you first learned the game. Uh, what? At what age did, did, did the sport really become a passion for you
0: I mean really really early I mean I, I played I was around it my whole life I, th- I think uh yeah it started you know probably in utero honestly with my uh you know going to games you know at open coliseum um ever since I could remember as a little guy um my dad would take me up there and we'd go early and watch batting practice um get some autographs all that fun stuff so it started when I was really young and got to a point where I just wasn't that good enough to, to keep going as a player and, and kind of evolved into the, uh, the front office stuff, which was, which was fun. What was
1: your peak as a player?
0: Um, I played all the way through high school. Um, I tried to, um, you know, play a little bit in, uh, in junior college during the summer there, and I wasn't that good, uh, frankly, and, it, you know, I ended up um, just kind of realizing, hey, like, I probably have to take another path here quickly, and um, ended up taking an internship with the Dodgers. Um, In college, which was really cool. And and that was a really kind of a nice eye-opening experience to kind of springboard kind of um, Into some different opportunities and met a lot of really good people there. It was awesome.
1: That internship with the Dodgers 215 miles round trip each day. It's a long trip. Yeah, (laughs) that's quite a a commitment.
0: It's a it is a long trip especially in a uh, in an old uh, 1977 Cheyenne truck that gets eight miles a gallon. So that's uh, that was a long trip. But must have, that,
1: that, so you basically paid for that internship
0: based on the gas alone. I did. I would, it, it, I would work some of the night games, actually, to, uh, to get 30 bucks. It was an unpaid internship, but I would make $30 bucks, uh, if I stayed during the game to help out. Um, so that was gas money, which, right. was, which was helpful. <laughs> so you were, you were a A's fan growing up? I was,
1: yeah. This is during the McGuire-Consico oh, right? era? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That must have been a fun, a fun time to be, to be a fan of that team. Awesome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every everybody, you know, I, I tried to play like Cardi Lansford and, and Ricky Henderson. You know, was my favorite player, and um, you know, I wore my hat on the mound like Dave Stewart. You know, I mean, these were these were my guys. So it was it was awesome, and actually getting to actually interact with some of these guys now is uh, is is so unbelievable. It makes you feel know, like a really kid again. Cool. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> so
1: interning with the Dodgers, I would imagine that around Dodger Stadium there are couple of photos of Kirk Gibson. I assume you just tried to look away from those? I, a few, yes. <laughs> and, uh,
0: and to this day, to be honest, I don't really watch that replay. I, I've, just, I've just sort of made that a point for whatever reason. Maybe it's just superstition. I just look away. Everybody's, everybody's got one, right? <laughs> that's it. That's
1: mine. You, uh, you graduated from UC Santa Barbara, degree in economics. Um, when you were going through college, did you know that baseball was the path you wanted to take? And how did you think an economics degree would necessarily help you in that in that path?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I had uh, kind of had it in mind to some degree, and I felt like sort of how do I build uh, my way to this, uh, you know, to working in a front office, honestly, that was kind of my hope, and, um, you know, I did an, an internship for A.G. Edwards Financial to kind of complement um, that. I did a, you know, a Nike internship. I was doing, you know, an internship for the, the school in the sports uh, department as well, so just trying to just add things to my resume to continue to just, uh, you know, see if somebody would notice, really.
1: <laughs> your, your next job in baseball after the Dodgers internship uh, came with the Rangers. Hmm? Uh, 2002, you're an intern there, working with John Hart, John Daniels. What, what did you learn from those guys? Um,
0: I think one of the biggest things was um, creativity, is what I would say. I, I think, you know, especially with the, the pedigree of somebody like John Daniels, you know, you have to keep up, you know, one, from a work ethic standpoint, I think, two, from a, like a creativity standpoint, he's obviously... You know, I got a really high pedigree and, and I just like kind of soaking in his information and, and being able to learn around him. I mean, with, with everything and, and, and really, you know, the ability to actually, he allowed me to, to be involved with things, you know, like he would ask questions and I would have John Hart walk over and ask me a question. He'd sit on the couch right next to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, John Hart wants, you know, wants to know what I think, you know, or John Daniels wants to know what I think. I mean, and there were so many amazing people there, you know, from Oral Hershiser and you know Terry Francona was our bench coach. I mean, you can just, there's just a lot of really cool people that I learned a lot from that year.
1: I've seen you once said that Alex Rodriguez was the best pure talent you've ever watched on a daily basis. What was it like watching him during those Texas days?
0: He was unbelievable. I mean, on both sides of the ball. I think people sometimes forget how good he was defensively, and just having appreciation for watching him every day. And and uh, you know, so explosive on on uh, on defense, and not to mention he's hitting 50 homers and. You know driving in 130 every year i mean that was unbelievable too so um definitely as far as a you know a guy that i got to witness you know on a regular basis he's probably the most talented player i've
1: ever seen your first full-time job came with the reds 2003 first of four seasons in cincinnati Uh, you were the assistant director of pro scouting and your duties included player analysis financial planning and arbitration as well as advanced amateur and professional scouting it's a lot uh, for a young guy with his first full-time job. Which part, did you find there was one area that you enjoyed the most or that you took to the most off the bat? We,
0: you know, I think at the time there was so much less specialization in the game, honestly, where it was, you know, now you see a lot of guys that are they're sort of in their own silo and really, really talented in that. At the time, I, I don't think we had as much specialization, which actually allowed me to get a lot of experience sort of um, horizontally, I think, throughout the organization, which was, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I was just soaking it in everywhere I could. I mean, you know, the advanced stuff, the major league stuff, the scouting stuff, the player development stuff. It was just whatever I could get my hands on. You know, there's 90 to 100-hour weeks that, you know, you're just like whatever it takes to to be around and help out. That was the the most important thing for me.
1: I saw a writer once refer to you as the Ben Zobrist of front offices. (laughs) Uh, Was part of your plan to become proficient in various areas of the game so that you could sort of have a hand in a whole bunch of different things?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think if, if um, that's an interesting way to put it, I, I, I do. I think if you're if you're able to be um, educated to to some degree, not not to the point where you're dangerous with it, but to the point where you can actually contribute and, and ask the right questions of the experts, I think that allows you to be
1: really good, hopefully, um, you know, comprehensively throughout your skill set. I'm sure that when you have your hands in so many different areas, it's natural to feel more comfortable with one over another. Which area of, this job or the jobs that you've had have you found most challenging
0: wow that's interesting um i don't know if it's anything in particular I would point i mean all of it really i mean you know there there are new challenges in everything and i think one of the things that we're we're obviously always looking for is those competitive advantages and we're, we're trying to sort of be on the bleeding edge of, uh, innovation while at the same time, you know, very much respecting, you know, tradition and the old school mentality and things, you know, that we want to respect throughout the game. So that's a balance. And I think, you know, uh, being challenged, I think across the board, I think is, is something I wake up every day and I really enjoy it
1: actually. You joined the Rays following the 2006 season as a professional scout, get promoted to director of professional scouting in November of 2009. Scouting is a very uh, interesting, uh, field, how do you learn to be a scout, especially Great if you haven't questions. played at a professional at exactly. a professional level?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's um, it is it is really tricky. I'm still learning, honestly, and I and I think that the uh, the the base I think is is being able to understand what the speed of the game looks like. I think at the highest level, and then working backwards from that, I think it's it's really interesting when you're when you're sitting there at a at a game in in uh, Latin America and you're watching 13, 14, 15 year old kids and trying to project these guys in the big leagues. And it's hard to do that if you don't really have a foundation for that. And so I was fortunate enough to do a lot of advanced scouting at a young age and sit behind the plate every day and bring a, a chart to Bob Boone. And, you know, I he he was looking for my thoughts on the game, which was unbelievable. You know, and so being able to say, hey, I thought X, Y, or Z added value, sort of as you, tra- you know, sort of transition that that understanding of value into the minor leagues and and internationally and amateur it gives you just a better sense for overall how how players get to value and so that's something for me when when a, when a when somebody talks to you about scouting it's like well i i have a hopefully have a pretty good sense for what that should look like um and you know what then it's also on the, on the other side of that it's kind of learning what that takes to then become that finished product so it's I'm still learning a ton about it, but it's a, it's a lot of fun.
1: I would imagine if you put 20 scouts in the seats behind the plate watching the same player, you'd get maybe not 20 different views, but 17, maybe. <laughs> how how much of scouting is also? just your gut and, and believing what you see with your eyes. It, it,
0: that's, that's a big part of it. And that's, that's I think, you know, and being around, you know, a lot of really good evaluators like Gene Bennett, who just recently passed away and, you know, signed Barry Larkin and Paul O'Neill and Chris Sabo and guys like that. And, um, you know, Larry Barton and Johnny Almorez and Bob Zuck. I mean, you know, really veteran, very well experienced guys. I mean, these guys would always talk about just, go, you know, trust, trust what you saw trust your eyes and and that's a big part of what we what we encourage our guys to do here too
1: pro scouting and amateur scouting are completely different worlds you you know amateur scouting you talked about going to you know the dominican and watching a 13 or 14 year old kid pro scouting these are professional players maybe it's advanced scouting or or, you know scouting for trades and such where you're you know these guys are already professional level but sort of how much better can they get how would they fit with our team uh is that basically two completely different jobs? I, mean, I feel like the amateur scouting, the makeup and the background and the family is as important as what you're seeing on the field. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, in the in the in the in the trade world, you know, on the pro side, we have the choice. We don't have to make that that decision on the draft. We got we, We're not going to pass, right? So, so we have to take a player. So, therefore, we have to really. It takes a ton of work to try to get these guys all lined up and. That's sort of the, the art and the science of sort of blending that draft board. And, and like you said, a lot of that comes into knowing the kids, knowing the families, knowing their background, you know, and what makes them tick. Um, are they going to be okay with failure? You know, really getting into the weeds when, with that. And, and that same thing I think applies on the pro side as well, But these kids are just so much further away, you know, amateur side and international-wise, where um, really you know, getting to know the kids is really, really important.
1: You mentioned Bob Boone before, it sparked into my head. Your first year in Cincinnati... Aaron Boone was still there. Yeah, uh, you guys traded him at the deadline of the Yankees. <laughs> However, well you got to know him back then. Could you see that that was a guy who could eventually go on to become a big league manager?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was very impressive then. And spend, I remember him spending a lot of time in our video room and uh, asking a lot of really good questions. And you know, inquisitive guys like that that are uh, you know have good presence that are intelligent. Those guys are going to you know do really well in the game. I know he's going to do
1: a good job in New York. Decent bloodlines too. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you get promoted again in Tampa Bay, become the director of player personnel. It caught my eye that you oversaw the Rays' biomechanics and human movement analysis at all levels of the organization. Uh, Doesn't seem like it would have been your your specialty there. How did that come about?
0: Um, Being curious, honestly, and and I think, you know, trying to uh, look for inefficiencies in the game. I think when when you see. A lot of other sports really diving into this, especially, you know, when you see, you know, soccer, the NBA, hockey, they're doing a lot of things with just general um, body movement. And that's something I, I actually got to know a lot about, I think, in, in scouting. I felt like that was a, a big part of, instead of understanding the, the, just the raw results, because we started to get more and more, um, you know, stats and data available, let's try to understand the process a little bit more. How do these guys move? How does their body work? You know what? uh, How are they getting to these results? Was kind of the big thing, and then I started really digging into that and spent, you know, hundreds of hours really just diving into that and surrounding myself with really smart people and asking them good questions.
1: You talked about trying to gain a competitive advantage. Um, It wasn't all that long ago that not every team had an analytics department. Now they all do, Uh, and so now it's not a matter of using analytics, but how you use them when looking for that next competitive advantage. And obviously, I'm not asking you to reveal any of your state secrets (laughs) here. But what areas do you think could be sort of the next wave? Is it sports science? Is it mental conditioning? Is it, um, I don't know what it could be, but do you think there are things that are still untapped or do you think at this point everything is tapped to some extent and it's a matter of how you use whatever information you can come up with? I
0: think it's probably a combination of those two. I mean, I think we've tapped into a lot and I think, you know, then being able to integrate that I think is sort of the next step within you know, players on the field, I think that's a, you know, that transitioning the, the knowledge and the analysis into um, digestible information, I think, is really kind of this, this next step, but then also continuing to explore all those avenues under that huge umbrella of sports science, those types of things, I think, are, are, uh, are you know, are ripe, I think, in our, in our industry, honestly, so, uh, and really in every department, I mean, that's, that's a fun part, I wake up every day thinking about that, you know, there's, there's something new that we could learn and get better from every day.
1: It's one thing for smart guys and smart guys and gals in the front office to sit there and say, "Here's what what we need to do. Here's what's going to make us better." It's another thing for players to buy into it. Uh, players are creatures of habits. They've been doing the same thing since they were in little league tapping their bat or whatever it you may know right. a meal they eat before a game. You know what they do the night before. Whatever it may be, how important is it to get players to buy into things as you guys come up with things? Whether it's you know sleep studies or um you know mental conditioning things analytics whatever it may be the players have to buy in for it to work right absolutely yeah we
0: and a lot of it i, I totally agree and, and and one of the things that we're doing a lot here is you know trying to get guys to understand that at a younger age so that the, when they show up in the video room like aaron boone did it's not all brand new you know he's walking into the room going whoa what is all this <laughs> stuff i've never seen any like all this equipment and all this information and when Aaron Boone was coming up, none of that existed in the minor leagues. Well, now we can hopefully get that you know, started at a, at a younger level so that when they get to the big leagues, we can actually, um, we can actually help them more with it sort of along, their way,
1: along the way. We discussed the difference between amateur and pro scouting a little bit. With Tampa Bay, one of your other tasks was some foreign scouting uh, and domestic scouting. What's the biggest difference in scouting players in the United States versus scouting them in other countries?
0: Wow, oh, good question. I, I, uh, there are a number of um, challenges, I think, when, when you appreciate the environment from where the kids come from, you know, the, the fact that the kids might not have had a, a warm meal before you worked out that morning, you know, or, or, you know, didn't sleep, you know, in a bed that night types of things. I mean, really things that we, you know, we're so blessed and fortunate to, to take for granted here that, you know, when you start appreciating where they've come from, I think that's that's the biggest. First step, um, and then trying to appreciate their you know their culture and, and then transitioning that into their development. You know, I mean, it's, it's not just after we sign them either. It's sort of how do we how do we integrate them into you know an Americanized system where that where we can get the most out of those players. I mean, it's it is a big challenge. You know, both when you're scouting them and when you're developing them.
1: And then even aside from younger amateur players in Latin America, you've got professional type players in Japan or in Cuba. How much of a concern when you when you look at players like that, or how much of a factor is it about the acclimation to the big leagues, to the, to America or Canada, if you're going to Toronto, uh, you know, and just sort of the, a whole different culture that they're going to be coming into? How do you sort of try to work all that out in your head as you look at some players internationally? It
0: it, it is a big factor, and and like I said earlier, it's a a big part of it is really getting to know the kids and seeing who can handle it. Um, a lot of the kids that are are more intelligent in a lot of ways, not just book smart, but sort of uh, street smarts, will adapt. That that's sort of my experience. That the guys that we get to know that um, you know don't look like they're lost in the library, so to speak. You know, when you're when you're wandering around, and uh, I have seen a few of those looks when they get into pro ball, and you're like, oh boy, this, <laughs> <laughs> this might not work. You know, and you see him show up on field seven, and he's completely lost. You know, those kind of guys are. Are a little bit concerning, so it is always a factor. Uh,
1: the Devil Rays had a difficult first decade, um, but in 2008, the Rays reached the World Series. Uh, how satisfying was it to be a part of that turnaround and a part of that ride in 2008?
0: It was it was unbelievable. Yeah, we we also had my uh, my daughter uh, was born during Game Three of the uh, ALCS. So oh that wow! That was that was a uh, yeah, that was a high leverage uh, a few weeks for me. Well, good so thing you right. guys were home. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> Um, no, it was unbelievable. And just, even when we were the Devil Rays, you know, there was never any, um, there was never really like this cloud, honestly. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like, at least when my time there with Joe and Andrew and and the guys, uh, I never felt like there was just this looming cloud of like, we're never going to do this. It was like, hey, we're going to be fine, you know, and and I feel that a lot here, honestly, in a way where, you know, with this this franchise has been through a lot, and it would just be unbelievable to be able to do that here with, with Milwaukee.
1: Was it, I, I'm sure, I, to ask if it was a challenge is silly, because obviously it was, but when you're in the American League East back then, you, I mean, the Devil Rays came into existence in 1998, the year the Yankees had one of the best seasons ever. Uh, the Yankees won in 98, 99, 2000. The Red Sox won in 04, 07. I mean, you, you had some really good teams in New York and Boston, did it feel like a, a huge uphill climb for the for the Tampa Bay franchise to try to compete with teams that not only outspent them but had these established cores of players and and you know really bright front offices and uh, you know you guys could challenge them on the front office side but but to put the product on the field was a whole different story.
0: Yeah, and 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 I, I, it's it always showed up when when they uh, the Yankees and Red Sox came to town and the majority of the fans were all Yankees and Red Sox fans, right? So. Um. It, it was certainly a challenge, but I don't think we ever shied away from it. You know? And we deal with it here you know, with the Cubs and the, and the Cardinals and, and their fan bases, and they have great fans as well. And so it's, uh, it, it makes it more rewarding, honestly, when you, when you win. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to, to do that.
1: What was it like in 08 to see the Trop come alive? I mean, that place has obviously gotten a bad rap for a lot of good reasons. Um, but that, that fall, I mean, I was there for the ALCS and the World Series, and that place was rocking, what was it like to see that place actually come alive and, and you know look like a, a big time major league ballpark? It
0: can it can definitely get loud in there. Now it's not you know on a Tuesday night against Baltimore, maybe not in in August, but you know when when uh, when that place wants to get going and and the fans are behind it, man, it is it is unbelievable. There, I've never been to a game at the Metrodome. I heard it was kind of very similar, very similar. That kind of
1: very similar energy. no baggy, so, but right? very similar. <laughs> right. um, so for me, when I think about the Rays. 08 was a really exciting time to be watching that team and covering those series. But if you ask me, the one night that stands out to me above all else, it's the final night of the 2011 season. Uh, I was in the press box that night covering the Yankees, and I remember watching the you know the, the Orioles Red Sox game on the TV on the wall, and then just turning <laughs> back and forth. What was that night like for right. you? That, I mean, that that was one of the most uh, memorable slash ridiculous nights we've seen in baseball in quite some time.
0: Unbelievable. I've i never been a part of a World Series champion, but I can't imagine it's it's frankly any better than that. And I and I know it will be when we get to that point. But um, I think I pulled my hamstring running around. <laughs> like I, I really blew out. Uh, but it was awesome. I mean, I you know I think in the fifth we're down seven to one. And seven uh, nothing. I you think. know, seven yeah. nothing. Right, and, and uh, I'm sitting in the upper deck, you know, by myself, just trying to create some luck and and frankly a little despondent and, and uh, you know just looking for different places to shift my luck and you know Longo hits a three run homer and then the next thing you know you got Dan Johnson hit one off the right field foul pole and we're back in it and then Longo sneaks one over the wedge in left field and you're like oh my gosh this just happened and the, the crazy part was just that as you know when it happened you know simultaneously with kind of what was happening in Boston. The rain delay in you know, that game. I mean right. it was unbelievable. We had Players that were going back to the clubhouse, watching the game, and then running back to the dugout, and you know all that, all that happening. You know Robert Andino hits that ball. I mean the next, so the next spring training, we actually gave our entire uh, dugout gave Robert Andino a standing ovation. <laughs> so uh, and and you know at first I was kind of wondering like why are we giving him an ovation? I was like oh that's oh great. that's right such a level of respect for what what happened that day, and just, I don't know if I'll be able to ever replace that hopefully when we get to the World Series and win. So you worked
1: under Andrew Friedman for many years in Tampa Bay. What would you learn most working under Andrew?
0: Oh my gosh, I just saw him yesterday. I mean, he is, um, you know, typically uh, the, the smartest guy in the room, and not not in an arrogant way, like, he is, he is truly, um, you know, one of the most talented people I've ever been around, and just just seeing how he operates, how he thinks about game, how... He thinks about decisions. How he looks at things from so many different angles. He really always keeps you on your toes, in, in a good way, you know, in, in a great way. And I felt like that was a great environment to learn from him.
1: How about Joe Madden?
0: Same thing. Joe is always on his game, um, and and Joe was always very. Even like I said earlier, it was really the the culture that we had there. Was that hey we're Devil raised, but we're going to be fine. Um, you know the the idea that. We're gonna be, we're gonna start to be competitive, and, and we're not gonna let teams push us around. I thought that was that was a big thing. I think we had a, a bench clearing moment uh, with Johnny Gomes during spring training at Yankees. second base. Shelly Duncan. Yes, and I felt <laughs> I was, like I that was there. Was that. Yeah, so we had that, and I felt like those kind of things were sort of turning points, and and Joe made it a point. I mean, he really sort of set the tone with, hey, we're not gonna get pushed around in this in this division anymore.
1: It was said that you were in the mix for the Brewers GM job before David Stearns was hired. Uh, you also interviewed with the Marlins and Braves for front office positions. What did you learn from that whole process of meeting with different teams uh, as you, you know, tried to move up in your career?
0: I mean, it, it's it's a it's a very humbling uh, process. You know, when you're when you're, uh, you know, these these jobs are so difficult to get, and I know that having you know had to kind of grind my way uh, into a, into a role. And so, the, just that what, um, you know, what what you can learn and bring to an organization, you know, is something that I think. Impacts me every day because I, I, I have to show up and, and bring everything that I want you know everything that 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 can advance the team every day. So we're constantly on offense. I think that's that's an important thing and and you know sharing that with, with that experience with other teams. I thought that was really cool.
1: Less than two weeks after David was hired, he hired you in your current position. How well did you guys know each other?
0: We had met a few times at meetings, but but uh, honestly didn't know each other great. But when when he called. Um, you know, it was it was a really, really easy conversation. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot in common. Um, and he was, uh, you know, incredibly open-minded and, and we got along instantly. And I felt like that was just a really good fit. I had a chance to talk to uh, Mark Atanasio as well and, and just felt like this was a really, really good fit for me and my family.
1: Despite the trend of teams having multiple assistant GMs, David was very clear when he hired you that you'd be the only one with Milwaukee. He said the two of you would be running baseball operations as a partnership. He's the boss, but what is the dynamic of your guys' partnership?
0: It's it, it's it's a lot like that, I think, and and I think that um, we trust each other with with everything, and and you know it's it's a it's a nice um, balance. I think we, we bring different skill sets to the table, in a, in a in a really healthy way. And I think it's a it's ha- it's healthy to have a good sounding board for me. Well, I'll I'll throw some things out there, and and he'll throw some things out there, and and it's it's always a conversation. And I feel like it's I, I love the. The, uh, the dynamic here where it''s it's, um, it's a very um, um, you know dynamic uh, balanced um, approach I think with with a lot of different inputs I think and, and David does a great job
1: balancing all those inputs he's, he's really really good. So we talked before about all the different things you had your hand in with your other jobs. according to your current bio your responsibilities include major league operations, roster construction, financial planning, contract negotiations and player personnel decisions. As well as supervision within player development, medical operations, scouting, and analytics, and you have two young children. Do you ever sleep?
0: Very little. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no. I mean, if uh, if you're sleeping, you're losing. So I, I think that's you know that's important that we we sleep less and work more. But no, it's uh, it is uh, it's it's a lot, and I think part of that you know our success is largely you know based on we have really, really good people running departments, and, and that's the, a bit of focus of mine, is sort of the, the personnel side, and making sure that um, you know in combination with David that we have the best people running each department, and they're, they're, uh, they're on top of everything, and they do really, really good
1: work. In an interview in 2009, somebody asked you about analytics versus scouting, and you said, quote, I think it's important that we separate the two fields as we each make our own evaluations, but then combine them in final synthesis of information when making a decision since then it's almost a decade do you think those two areas have converged even more where there's no really not really analytics versus scouting anymore it's really a, a marriage of the two I do yeah there,
0: there's certainly a lot more overlap I think than, than at that time I, I do think that there are blind spots clearly in both and I think the ability to appreciate those I think from both sides make the, the final decision more comprehensive when they come together and and then when they you know when the information, Um, is asymmetrical, then you're able to ask questions sort of why, you know, and then, you know, some things lead you to to more questions and they open more doors. And so, yeah, at the same time, I I do think by and large things have have, uh, converged and and there's a lot more overlap now than there was in the past.
1: The Brewers have been able to rebuild without going through the bottoming out that the Cubs and Astros did, although both of those teams obviously had a lot of success winning the last two World Series. It seems like the plan here has been more of a retooling than a rebuilding. How tough is that to do?
0: it it is tricky because um you know teams are um you know compensated through the draft by picking higher and so you know when when you go through a a rebuild like houston or uh, chicago did for example they're rewarded by picking higher in the draft right so um our rebuild like certainly we've picked higher but you know we're picking later and later hopefully we're going to be picking later again and it does make it more challenging because you won't have the same level of of access to top players through the draft so that means we have to be more creative in trades it means we have to be better internationally it means we have to be better in player development when we do access those players so um, certainly it puts more pressure on you too Um, not that we're necessarily skipping a step but that we um, you know we're we're trying to do this without you know completely um, you know going through it you know the way some other teams have for sure
1: when you guys acquired Travis Shaw, you cited his versatility as one of his more attractive features. Tampa Bay was really big on versatile players. We mentioned Ben Zobrist before; he was sort of the the model for the Swiss Army knife kind of player. Um, how important is that versatility to you when you're looking at potential trade targets or free agent signings? It, it's
0: it's uh, it's still very important, and at the same time, I think you have to have guys that are that are whole players that can play you know play a position and. play it well on both sides of the ball i mean you see that with some of the best teams they have you know good players at a position you know and, and when you're when you have less resources sometimes you have to cobble together value in different ways and that that does require versatility but obviously if you have guys that can do it more often like the chris taylors of the world you know those guys can play all over the place and and add value in a number of different positions those guys are incredibly valuable and i think we went through that a lot um, you know, through the, you know, through learning, you know, with, with Ben Zobrist, honestly. So.
1: This offseason, Mark Adonacio met with you and Dave in California to discuss the direction of the club. The verdict, according to him, was that winning in 2018 was as important as winning in 2020. As you sort of look at long-term, uh, you know, plans, it seems like an obvious thing to say that winning this year is, is the most important thing. Are you surprised that every team doesn't look at winning this year as being sort of the, the most important thing? yeah i mean look we're
0: we're in a uh every team goes through different analyses and how they how they want to approach their their off season i mean we're we're of the mind where we want to try to compete if we feel like we're in that window i mean clearly we spent a lot of money this off season. we've added some some talented players we hope and and so that is our our mindset that we can we're kind of in that position where we came to people we don't want it to be fleeting either we want to really compete for a long period of time here so Hopefully being able to build up this while being able to sustain it, I think, just like we did to a large degree in Tampa
1: is kind of the goal. How much did the success in 2017 help sort of build that confidence that contending now is more realistic than it may have been two years ago?
0: It, it, it definitely and, and i and i think there's the the it starts with craig honestly in the, in the dugout and and uh and in the clubhouse i think the the expectations downstairs are are higher based on what we did last year in a, in a, in a healthy way and our guys um understood that we you know we can compete and i think the guys came in this year hungry and, and you see it on the field already i mean these guys are are ready to go and feel the energy in camp i mean it's it's pretty fun to see this group kind of come together and, and really want to build off of what we did last year.
1: Not to fast forward your career, but uh, is becoming a general manager an aspiration of yours?
0: You know, I, I, I uh, I've always just wanted to, to win, you know, really. And, and I think personal success comes through success through the team. And, and that's first and foremost for me is just being a part of winning culture and, and, and winning world series is really my goal. I, I, I would, uh, I would, you know, that would just be as good as it gets, honestly. And so, you know, we have a lot of good things going on here, and I feel like we're on the right track. So that's, that's
1: it's pretty cool. Give you something more than Game 162 to yeah. remember <laughs> as the highlight, that right? right? That was fun. What uh, you mentioned before, what it would mean to bring a championship back to Milwaukee. You've seen the Packers win, and not in Milwaukee exactly, mm-hmm. although they are Wisconsin's overall team. What do you think it would mean to the city to have a winner with the Brewers again.
0: I mean, you see, I mean, last year we drew 2.6 million people, you know, and and coming from an environment like Tampa where we didn't quite draw that <laughs> that level, um, I I certainly you know candidly did not have an appreciation for that coming in here, and and man, I mean, you just see these diehard lifelong fans that are that are just you know bleeding blue and gold. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, it really is. It's humbling to be around it, and and just to be able to kind of live up to those expectations where. You know, they talk about this 1982 team, um, you know, I, th- I think there was a parade for that team and, you know, they didn't, they didn't win the World Series, you know, I mean, that's, that's um, to be able to just be a part of a, a team that could get back to that level would be un- incredible for the city, it really would.
1: Last one, you've met some cool people throughout your career, Dick Vitale was always at the Rays games, uh, Mike Visala, your PR director has a unique relationship with some professional wrestlers. Uh, Who's who's the best one you've met with the Brewers?
0: Oh, definitely the Honky Tonk Man. He comes in in here every spring, and uh, he's an interesting character. He's a lot of fun. He's he's out back hanging out with the guys. He's a a blast. So uh, we haven't seen him yet this spring, but I'm sure he'll be out here soon.
1: Matt Arnold, Brewers Vice President and Assistant General Manager. Thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. Many thanks to Matt Arnold for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, we're going to try something a little different. I'll sit down with my colleague Jim Duquette, a former big league general manager himself, to discuss the Super 2. What does that term mean? Why does it matter? And which players going forward are likely to fall into that category? We'll do a deep dive into one of the terms every baseball fan needs to know. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Hey,
2: Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best